Welcome to the Rough Puffs. I'm your host, Andrea Bennett. And I'm Kim Fu. And we're on episode five, Pies. That's my child. We're recording at 10.30ish on a Sunday. We have recently been recording the last couple episodes uh, on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. when the child is in bed. And the reason why the toddler clapped is because we clapped to sync our sound and she missed the fun. Yeah. (laughs) The first, the signature challenge is to bake a beef wellington or to bake a wellington and often those are beef uh, but they can kind of use whatever meat they want. Um, Paul, as per usual, wants to see a great bake. The Wellington Challenge, he says, is all about the pastry. One of the parameters is that it has to be at least eight inches long. And when they say that, they they have this sneaky little shot of uh, John sort of raising his eyebrows for a second. Yeah. <laughs> John gets to be a little saucy in this episode. Another part of this challenge is that there's not often occasion on Bake Off to do non-vegetarian stuff. Uh, You're not really, I mean, I guess you'd have gelatin in a sweet thing, but generally, you know, they're not doing a ton of savory stuff. So they open with a savory item and everyone is doing meat and some people do lamb. And I felt like we saw the sheep who live in the field around the tent like way more often. Danny does make a vegetarian one, actually. She does. Hers is chickpea and spinach and mushrooms and garlic. And it it sounded really good. But when it came to the judgment, they said that it was missing, you know, that certain oomph. Like it didn't didn't have impact in flavor was the vibe. It's missing fat and umami. Hmm. What one wants from a Wellington is that pastry that is ideally like flaky pastry or rough puff or puff pastry, which is in and of, in and of itself like quite buttery. And then you get in there and you want like fatty umami center part. And so we'll talk about this later, but I made my own vegetarian Wellington and I thought a lot about that. And so when we saw uh, Danny's, I didn't think that it was exactly going to work. There's a time and a place for like chickpeas only or whatever. (laughs) And actually, I often make black bean burgers instead of getting like impossible meat or uh, fake fake meat that does have a bunch of saturated fat. And that's fine. Um, But I do feel like for a Wellington, I don't know, you need to get that fat in there. Otherwise, it's just not going to hit that note Mm -hmm. of that like Wellington note that is satiating for the thing that you're expecting from it. Something I was wondering while watching this episode is it wasn't just that people made a bake with a lot of meat in it. It was it was very extreme even for meat eaters. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It was like a lot of types of meat packed together really tight uh, and we were watching shots of them when they're very raw and red and I, I did wonder if you're able to make the imaginative leap still, like if you could look at those and say, if I ate meat, which of these would I eat? Or or even just how that feels, because it's not... Cause, yeah, to me, it is a very extreme situation that we're talking about. We're yeah. talking about huge logs of meat, jam- like, jammed together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. I can still make the imaginative leap. Um, I The reason why I don't eat gluten has to do with um, what is probably an autoimmune disorder, the long and the short of it is that uh, I began to eat meat again in my 20s because I was uh, desperately anemic and very unwell and had a super restricted diet. 
And so I started in with, I think chicken was my gateway meat because I didn't feel as bad about eating the little dinosaurs. Um, but uh, I do actually love cows. Like I think they're, they're adorable and I would love to befriend them. But, I, but beef is also delicious. And so I have eaten steak. I've eaten meat, I've eaten beef, you know, a handful of times, more than a handful of times over the past decade. And because of how food oriented I am, I remember what it is like. Yeah, but okay, here's the thing, right? You're, you know, you mentioned like chicken dinosaurs. And to me, that Mm. is a universe away from venison and haggis like wrapped in parma ham you know (laughs) oh yeah i'm not so james makes a four little pigs wellington and it's pork fillet smoked gammon prosciutto and black pudding Mm -hmm. i have no desire to eat that uh yeah i could imagine some of them but it is it was more of a sort of um theoretical exercise for me than like i really want to cut into some of these and catherine for example she wraps Parma ham around a full English breakfast, minus the baked beans. Mm-hmm. So she has eggs, tomatoes, um, black pudding, and mash, I think. I can't remember exactly. But everyone else is super excited about that. I look at that, and I have no interest in, like, a sort of scotch egg Wellington, personally. Minisha does a lamb Wellington with rosemary and mint. And Mm -hmm. I don't like eating lamb, but I can kind of picture what that would be like. And it's interesting to sort of bring mint in as a fresh herb uh, when people often eat uh, lamb with like a mint jelly or chutney. Catherine and James both had black pudding, which I do think is up there with more challenging meat products. Um, It's a very intense meat flavor to my mind. Like you have to really like meat and the inherent essence of meat and the flavors that come only through meat and animal blood. Like you, you couldn't be like exactly what you're saying about Manisha, you know, that you can picture mint jelly and you can picture sort of the fla- flavors that go on top, even as you don't like the flavor that is at the heart of it. Um, you would really not like black pudding, I guess is my point. No, I've never, my as I mentioned before, my family is English and they do like black pudding. I've never eaten it. Um, even before I became vegetarian, I have, yeah, I've just always been a little bit picky. Um, one time when my relationship with my partner was like kind of new, we went out for uh, dinner and his family ordered, um, tendon, Mm. um, as part of like as one dish on of many. Mm -hmm. And I was still eating some meat at the time and they're the type of family where everybody needs to try everything and, and so I was being encouraged by pe- like people that I didn't know super well, like, oh, you really have to try this. It's so tasty. You got to give it a try. And I did not. I've done that a lot of times. I have really intense social anxiety, but the desire to not eat meat products I find slightly creepy mm. <laughs> overpowers it. So I've also never eaten oysters. Yeah, it's. I do feel like slightly embarrassed about admitting this because um I do feel like it's kind of a mark of a childish palette like a Paul Hollywood palette although he loves black pudding but you know when he's like I don't like booze in my desserts I do have some issue with texture like I think there's textures related to more challenging cuts of meat not being cooked well that I don't like like I thought for a long time that I don't like tripe or like 
just animal intestines as a general category because I'd only had it cooked poorly. Um, and then one time I was at a restaurant and they had like a, it was a, it was a Chinese restaurant, but they had kind of like a complimentary appetizer situation. I've had this a few times now and it's like a cold lamb intestine, um, with that's mixed with peppers and chilies and garlic. It was so good. And then I was like, Oh, okay. I thought I didn't like that cut of meat, but I actually just had never had it done right. That reminds me of the, did you in the U.S. get this segment with um, Mel where she goes and eats eel pie yeah. on the Thames? Okay. I wasn't sure if they were cutting out the historical uh, context bits. Um, that reminds me, I, she says when she eats it that she's expecting a rubbery eel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently writing an essay about like appetite and eating on camera and... What I love about this segment, and I'm sorry for jumping ahead, it just reminded me. Um, she does say that it tastes like the river. It tastes rivery. Mm-hmm. But she takes her first bite, and that's all she's obligated to do as a host who's doing this segment. But then as the fellow, the eel shop fellow is talking, she keeps, like, tucking in because she likes the pie. That's interesting. I felt like she did not look like she enjoyed the pie. I feel like she was, you're right, she kept eating it, um, but there was something, she looked like she was suffering a little bit as she was going, and it felt more like politeness, like she didn't want to offend the shop owner, you know, like she had to tell him it tasted good. And the things that she came, everybody's going outside now. The vibe of your house on a Sunday morning is very different (laughs) than the vibe of your house on a Tuesday night. Um... (laughs) Yeah, so it felt to me like politeness. Like she was in front of the shop owner and she had to eat. Like he, the way he was looking at her too, he does not seem like the kind of guy that would truck with her not eating, not eating the whole pie, right? You're not, he, you could, this guy, I couldn't sit across from this guy and eat one bite for the camera. No way. He is expecting you to eat that whole pie. Um, but the thing she said, like that it tastes like the river, that it wasn't like as rubbery as she was expecting, that it was like a little more delicate. She just... She had this look on her face like she was pushing herself through it and eating kind of fast even, I would say. Um, and I really, li- I really like eel, right? I agree it is like a delicate, flaky fish, and I'm really into it. But I did not get the vibe that she enjoyed it. I've never had eel either, which is probably unsurprising. But um, I felt like she, was ex- like she was curious. You know when you eat something and you're like, do I like this? I might like this. And it's sort of setting off, like, different bells in your head. I thought that was the vibe. Like, she was continuing to eat because she was like, I like it. Do I like it? I like it. Interesting. I would but. guess she initially was like, the texture is not as bad as I thought. And then she kept going and was like, I still don't like this taste, though. Yeah. <laughs> like, based on what she said and, the and yeah, these shifting storms on her face, that would be my guess. But anyway, sorry, I took us down a side road we should return to the signature challenge so um there are two fish dishes yes um salmon salmon eggs rice mushroom spinach for brendan Mm -hmm. um and he also does a pastry that's kind of different um it's equal quantities butter strong flour and quark which is a kind of soft cheese Mm -hmm. and it's leavened with some baking powder um so that seems kind of potentially interesting and then a, Ryan does a sea bass en croute with Malaysian curry powder and puy lentils. He's worried that the lentils are going to make everything a little bit too wet. Um, 
from my understanding, pui lentils or lentils de pui are are the green lentils that hold you hold their shape. Um, so they're often used in uh, like a lentil salad or something like that. The red lentils kind of turn into mush. They're nice for lentil loaf. Um, but when I think of them, I don't think of them as wet. I think of them as like somewhat kind of dry. And Ryan also is going to make his look like a fish, which I love. Yeah, it came out really well, too. I thought the design looked beautiful at the end. I do think if you were cooking onions and lentil and fish together, there's a lot of risk of a lot of liquid there. Um, And specifically sea bass, right, which is like a very lovely buttery fish. Um, Mm -hmm. I thought that one sounded really good. Actually, I was very excited about both of the fish pies. Um, Yeah. Because, yeah, the, the cork cheese was really interesting to me. I've never had it. My understanding is that it's it's in the cottage cheese, yogurt, cream cheese kind of family, that it's, like, very mm. soft and very uh, spreadable. And using it as part of a dough was incredibly interesting. Both of them sounded really exciting to me. And I think it's because in my life I've eaten a lot of pork logs, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. that that is a thing I'm familiar with is, like, just these big honking meat tubes. Um, I've eaten a lot of that in my life. Whereas these two fish pastries really sounded like something I hadn't had before. And I also, I just, I love salmon and I love sea bass in particular. Yeah. It just didn't seem as overwhelming as this pork density situation that was happening elsewhere. Yeah. I think part of it is that, um, you know, when you make a Wellington, it's the center of the table, but you have side dishes. It's kind of like a Sunday rose type situation. Um, so just, you know, when they take cuts of it and they're putting it on the plate and you're thinking about it, you're not really thinking about the sides in this challenge. So it does seem super overwhelming to have like pork hunk with flaky paste with like puff pastry. Um, but in real life, it would be, you know, one of the things on your plate that you're eating. You probably have salad with it. It's just it's also just I've eaten it a lot. That's all I mean is I eat a lot of cured product cured pork yeah. products are have been a big feature of my life and if I was if I had access to someone who could cook this well in my life I would be more interested in these in these different more delicate things they could do these more subtle things they could do mm-hmm. I did actually want to eat the I would have tried the the fish ones um I should say although I initially misunderstood until they show uh images of of Ryan like preparing his fish I thought he was going to do a whole fish Mm. Um, for I don't know why, but when they said sea bass en croute, I was picturing like the full sea bass, um, which is it's not. Um, what he does makes a lot more sense because I don't even know how you would deal with a fish head en croute. But <laughs> oh, I guess we should talk about Sarah Jane. Poor Sarah Jane. She yes. makes some mistakes. Oh yes, Sarah Jane. So before we get to the major mistake, um, at the very beginning, when she's just searing the. The whole beef tender... They don't say that it's a beef tenderloin, but that's what I'm assuming it is. Um, mm-hmm. It looks like a whole beef tenderloin to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's saying how it's so expensive and she's so worried about messing mm-hmm. it up because that feels terrible. That was a very relatable moment to me. That is something that stresses me out about using nice and expensive cuts of meat is I'm worried that I I won't do it justice. It is a little bit more terrifying to, um, <laughs> to take a really nice cut of meat. Uh, particularly if you're not really skilled at cooking meat, which I'm not. Um, and I guess Sarah Jane sadly isn't either. Maybe she is. Maybe she is, and this was just kind of a curveball ball. But she is worried about her meat not being done enough, which you don't even have to worry that no, much about with beef no. tenderloin. I know this as someone who, like, doesn't eat meat. 
if you still have a bit of you're supposed to have a little bit of pink in the middle at the end of your at the end of your cooking process traditionally a chateaubriand like the center part of that giant cut is supposed to be is served very rare um Mm -hmm. so that being a concern was was very strange to me her wanting to keep the juices in with the tin foil was very weird and then i feel like she was adequately warned you know, you should let it cool or, you know, I, you know, Mary was like, you're not going to let it chill, you know, before yeah. you wrap it in, in pastry <laughs> and, you know, you're not expecting just the butter to run out. And then when it does go in the oven, you know, it looks like, it looks like the beef tenderloin is like taking off a jacket, you know, like it's sloughing yeah. off clothes and the pastry is just, just melting off to the sides. So sadly, but unsurprisingly, <laughs> Mel, when it's time for the for like judging, Mel tries so hard. She's like, I think it looks quite coquettish. Um, yes. And then Paul is like, just deadpans, like, I think it looks like something from the Alien film. Yes. yes. And and then Mary explains that she thinks it happened because um, Sarah Jane didn't chill her tenderloin in her very like kind Mary Berry way. Mm-hmm. But her face. Um, at the beginning uh, was the most, it's like not judgmental, but she's so soft and kind, Mary Berry, but she had this look on her face like danger, danger. Mm-hmm. It comes up at the end too with someone else and we'll get there. But yeah, this this episode for Mary Berry, I think she must be a little bit the queen of pies because everyone's missteps this episode uh, she knew exactly how things were going to fail, and it seemed like she just wanted to intervene so desperately. That is a good point. I, that did not occur to me, but I think you're 100% right. Was the, was the history segment next, or was it the technical next? Yes, it was the history section next, the interstitial Ela pie, I wrote. Which is interesting, um, by this season, the first two seasons, they were a little bit more heavy on... Uh, history, UK history and the, the ways in which different bakes were tied to UK history and um, colonialism and the Industrial Revolution, yada yada, which um, I found equal parts interesting and also a little bit like not critical enough of empire at points. Mm, yeah. But I did enjoy this eel pie interstitial. Um, Mel is the goes and stands on a bridge uh, near the Thames. And she says that the Thames is essentially a giant eel pond. And during the Industrial Revolution, when it got really polluted, eels were one of the only things that could continue living in there. Mm-hmm. I think they mentioned like later in the segment that they don't anymore. Like eels used to thrive in the Thames and there are no longer eels. It's possible they were just overfished. I mean... Mm. Humans as a whole, with some segments of human excluded, have overfished most of the world's fishes at this point. Um, And so now eels are expensive. I did like that contextualization of it, though. You know, that the water was polluted, that eels are really nutritious, that they're really high in fat. Um, Mm -hmm. Five pieces of eel for a hay penny, that... (laughs) (laughs) that way of putting it um i really missed these history segments when they went away actually Mm -hmm. i feel like they were important i liked them inherently i thought they were interesting but i also felt like they set the tone in a certain way they made gbbo feel different from other food competition shows uh in Mm -hmm. a way that was important and i hear you on them being vaguely 
propaganda-y, but I still, yeah, I still miss them. I also miss them. Yeah, I'd rather have them than not have them. I just feel like it is probably important to know (laughs) that some of them were like, I don't know, during the period in which England was taking over the world. Yeah. You know, the other half of your brain is like with the slave ships. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or like all the kids working in the cotton mills. Where is the cotton coming from? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Also, yeah, it's like the the pollution they mention is not something that that just happened, you know, it wasn't like a natural disaster yeah. under that no one knows why the Thames yeah. became so polluted. But was... I do miss them. They give nice context to the bakes that they're doing. Um, and it is interesting to, I don't know, it's nice to think about the historical roots of different foods. The UK is pretty small, but it's split into like lots of different countries and cultures and segments. And so I found that interesting too. Um mm-hmm. I do think that's really interesting too. Uh, like hyper regionality is something that also really interests me, especially now because I feel like everything is so homogenous, right? Mm-hmm. Or I mean, maybe this is just because I live in in a you know in a metro city where the expectation is that you should be able to get any kind of food anywhere, but it's not going to be that good. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> like you should have every kind of food on earth available to you, but it's not going to be done especially well. And that's a weird compromise to have landed on you're you're that's a very specific that's a very specific food culture and i think i prefer hyper regionality if that were possible that you know that there would be specialties for such small regions um when i was watching this segment a moment where i sort of wished i was with you uh is when they mentioned that in the old days the pie shop would be covered the floor would be tile and covered in sawdust (laughs) so people could spit out the eel bones onto the floor and i was like what is andrea's face well this is happening i can show you what it was it was um so lower jaw dropped and widened in in looking up at the sky like oh god because i'm picturing all the people eating like that yeah i'd have to take mine to go Oh yeah, and then also the like the buckets of live thrashing eels being sold mm. by street vendors. They they're not a terribly appealing fish to look at live. Mm. Well, I mean, um, well, which fish are? I was gonna say that, but once I was at an aquarium with my family, and we were <laughs> we were looking at a, like a tank of Arctic char. <laughs> That was supposed to be like educational about the life of Arctic char, and when you know one of us went like, mm. <laughs> we were all thinking about how delicious it looked. When you see a salmon or when you see a tuna, you you can think like, hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm not thinking that when I see an eel. It looks like, and I guess you wouldn't have this context in the Industrial Revolution. But you know that, um, and I don't know uh, superheroes or villains very well, but Venom, mm-hmm. do you know who Venom is? And yeah. he has that like suit that yeah. like, scoops over his body. That's an eel to me. How do you feel about a squid and octopi? Do they look appealing to you? No. Um, mm. Nothing that, I'd, I've been told that they are not rubbery, but they look like they'd be rubbery to me. And I also have like a particular thing about uh, octopus with its little like suckers mm. um, that I picture the octopus like reanimating and crawling its way like back out of my 
throat. You know, that is a common fear. You're not the first person who's told me that. Like, there are people who like to eat the rings but don't like to eat the tentacles that still have visible suckers on them. Um, for And they have described that exact same fear that you are, that it'll, like, stick to the inside of their throat. Uh, and that's really interesting to me because I kind of hear you about live eels not looking super appealing. But I think octopi and squid, maybe because I have actually butchered them, um, they do look appealing to me. Maybe yeah. not alive, but but dead, like certainly like a. Like, I mean, I don't know how this sounds to other people, but a dead squid or octopus in front of me, I do feel like <laughs> excited about eating it, kind of. Yeah. I think that also, like, apparently jellyfish are now thriving really well in these ocean conditions that we have created for creatures oh, that live yeah. in the ocean. And I'm not that interested in eating jellyfish, but, um, you know, when you think about eating ethically, um, it's not a bad idea to turn our our eating focus to jellyfish at this point in time mm-hmm. that are, like, taking over a different... I mean, mm-hmm. it's taking one jerky takeover creature and applying it to another... Um, I keep wanting to go down this path. I keep wanting to ask you about other things, like if you think they look delicious or not. But I think maybe this is... Let's save it for a different episode. All the vegans and vegetarians listening to this episode are appalled by this. They've logged off by this point. Okay. Uh, Technical? Yeah, technical challenge. So they're doing a chicken, bacon, and apricot hand-raised pie made with a hot water crust chicken bacon and apricot sounds like a really good combination to me until they start talking about the good bit of jelly that you pour in to fill the cracks um Mm -hmm. so like sort of like a gelatin type thing and i understand why they do that because they're kind of getting these ingredients to a point where they're like dry so that they can layer them and so the jelly is going to make the pie delectable again um Mm -hmm. But mm, that was the point at which I was like, eh, I tap out. Um, So they use dollies to form the pastry after they've made their hot water crust pastry with uh, equal parts of lard and butter and hot water. Um, John says he likes making hot water crust pastry because he has hot hands usually, which is kind of cute. What what does that mean? Normally, so when you're making pastry a lot of the time, you are keeping your ingredients as ice cold as possible. You're keeping your butter ice cold. Oh, I see. Uh, you're using ice cold water. And so, and then you're working the dough, um, either with some, you know, with your hands, if you're doing rough puff, uh, to mix it up at the beginning. Um, and so if you have super hot hands, you're warming up that butter and you have to keep popping it into the fridge because if your butter melts into your flour, it completely changes the texture of your dough. So hot water crust, um, I don't actually fully understand how it functions and why it works, but it does. And, and that's why John likes making it because he can just put his hot hands in there and not have to keep parking it in the fridge. You know, as this is a bridge between the signature and the, and the technical, I feel like Manisha had a vibe this week of feeling a little fed up with the ridiculousness of some of these <laughs> challenges. Uh, you know, I feel like during this, the signature, she was like, she was making full puff pastry and she was saying, who makes their own full puff pastry yeah. <laughs> these days? And then I feel like when they brought this out and they're all staring at these dollies, um, it's like, she's like, I've never seen one of these in my whole life. You know, like this is like, what an absurdity. You know, we live in an era with pie tins now. Why would anyone do this? I think John said that actually. John said that, but they all, they all, that was the, the general attitude mm-hmm. in the room. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a fair point. Mm-hmm. But, and the dollies too, 
Oh, yeah, they do seem like they'd be a real pain in the ass to work with. You know, chicken, bacon, and something sweet, to what to your earlier point, is, all, is also like a, a flavor combination I really like. But this looked gross. This It looked kind of just too thick. Especially the way the way it looked, like it made me picture having a lot of unrendered fat in my mouth, yeah. is what I was thinking. Um, the combination of the stock jelly and the cold bacon and and just the, the sheer like heft of it, you know, the way it, it cuts so cleanly through. That feels like it would feel so heavy, like you'd eat it and you just need to lie down for four hours. <laughs> yeah, I'm not particularly interested in the in the final product either. Mm-hmm. This whole concept I assume must have existed for like different practical reasons when this pie was developed. Yeah. Um, you know, they let it, they have to let it sit overnight. So that tells me like, oh, it's, it's something that would last a few days potentially or last, you know, a little while in potentially an unrefrigerated type situation. It is a food from an era that had different exigencies and we don't have those (laughs) so much anymore. You're you're right. The the denseness that is so off-putting to me, the solidity of it that's off-putting to me, you can see it making a good travel snack for that Mm -hmm. reason. If you were like off on a hunt or something, you could just pull this pie out of your pocket and it would still be intact. (laughs) Um, So obviously everyone does... Everyone does pretty not great in the no, technical. They, they all, so at the beginning, Paul says you have to oil your dolly really well for them to come off right. And I, and maybe nobody but Sarah Jane does that. I can't understand why. It, like, she's the only one who manages to, like, pry it off in one piece. Everyone else is kind of just futzing with it and reforming with their hands after the fact. Yeah. I think part of it is that. You know, if you think about the dolly, like you think about um, a rolling pin, Mm -hmm. like, oh, I'll just flower it a bit. But that's obviously not going to work. So, yeah, everyone gets there stuck. And um, everyone's pies are, like, completely different shapes. Uh, Even sometimes, like, because they make two pies, even Mm -hmm. the two pies are, like, totally different looking oftentimes. Paul comes out during the judging and says, you would never think they all had a dolly the same size looking <laughs> out at this. <laughs> so we have in the bottom at the end of this competition, uh, we have Ryan and Danny. Um, Ryan's ends up being a pasty and he doesn't have layers, which mm-hmm. again, like it, to me, it's like, who cares? Like that probably is more delicious, but that's not the challenge. And I can't remember. Um, oh, Danny has no jelly. Uh, yeah, it runs straight through the bottom, which yeah. makes sense to me. I can see why that would happen. But then the winner is Catherine, and yes. she also had no jelly. So I think they were all kind of a mess, you know? I yeah. think she was she was the best of not great pastries. You know, um, two things. One, I was wondering if you know anything about the audition process to get on GBBO, because I do not. Um, but Ryan mentions offhand that he made a hot water crust pheasant pie for his audition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hadn't thought about that part, that they must bake in front of them for their audition. They must feed them something at their audition, right? Yeah, I don't actually, I don't know if they bake there or if they bring, or if they're just bringing the bakes to the audition. Um, we should look into that. I We haven't done a lot of like external to GBBO watching like we're mostly Mm. just talking about like the food aspects of it and not the behind the scenes production aspects of it but listening to ryan talk about that did make me curious but i don't have an answer for you 
maybe there could be a mid-season special for us. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing is, to me, this episode had kind of a, a narrative arc. Um, it had more of an emotional story than most of them do. And for me, the main character was Ryan. Mm-hmm. I was extremely invested emotionally in Ryan the whole time. Uh, and he was sort of breaking my heart. You know, at the mm-hmm. end of this one, uh, he, you know, he's last in the technical. And he's just so off his game at that point, I feel like. Uh, he he says, you know, I worked so hard to get to this point And, you know, you have to get the basics right. And pastry's a basic. And I didn't do it. And it just, you know, I, I feel like, like yeah, I, I felt like he was sort of falling apart emotionally in a way that I was extremely invested in. And I really didn't want him to go because it meant because the focus was on how much this meant to him. Yeah. Um, whereas I felt like, as I was saying, I felt like Manisha felt a little bit done with all this. You know, it felt a bit silly to her. I think she, I think also in the signature she said, oh, you know, if this goes well, I might make it more at home, which is how I approach, like, cooking at home, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if I'll try a new recipe a couple times, and if it's just... If it's just too finicky, you know, I'll just be like, well, I'm not going to make this anymore. This is not going to yeah. go in the rotation. Um, and that was kind of her vibe, is I feel like she's, like back to the real world and like thinking again about <laughs> cooking in this way outside like the you know the ludicrous things that are being asked of her here definitely um the other thing i'll do with recipes like that is make it the super finicky way and then figure out the like lazy cheat way i can make mm-hmm. something approximating it in future mm-hmm. there are lots of recipes for which there are like many pain in the ass steps that you can uh compress down and then it's it's not the end of the world. And maybe you choose sometimes to, I don't know, roast your tin tomatoes in the pan without the liquid before you add the liquid back in. <laughs> maybe sometimes you're just like, ah, eh, fuck it. Sometimes, too, I'm trying to adjust recipes so that they use ingredients in the proportions those ingredients actually come. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Like, say, like you only need one tablespoon of this. And I'll be like, well, what happens if you put it in the whole can? (laughs) So that I'm not storing a can of this thing in my fridge or making this recipe 10 times or whatever, right? 100%. Or having to dovetail my entire week around it. Mm -hmm. Should we go to Andrea's Baking Corner? Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of home home cooking. So this week, I made a vegetarian gluten-free Wellington, or as I was calling it, as I was tweeting about it, I like quote-unquote beef, quote-unquote Wellington. (laughs) So I looked up a gluten-free rough puff recipe, and a gluten-full rough puff is kind of like, it's like flour and butter and cold water, and Bob's your uncle. Um, the gluten-free rough puff that I found was a little bit like a galacto, and then it called for milk and eggs, like ice-cold milk and eggs, rather than ice-cold water. Interesting. And you do the same, like, six or seven turns. It's helpful for gluten-free dough um, to keep everything together and keep it kind of, like, workable. And yeah, I, I, I love a galette dough, so I was sort of interested in that. Um And then the other thing that was a bit strange, to help get some flakiness uh, start to develop, you start your oven 50 degrees higher than it needs to be and then bump it down after five minutes. Uh, Once again, I Frankensteined like three different recipes together and followed none of them exactly because what I used for my center was um, 
uh, one of the sort of recent, recently developed meat substitutes, ground beef substitutes, that is high fat, high high in saturated fat, mm-hmm. um, because I wanted that. I I <laughs> I just wanted that sort of sense of like a rich Wellington. Unlike Danny. Yeah, unlike Danny's. Um, so I followed a recipe that was for like a ground beef Wellington, and then I made a duxelle which is like the mushroom layer. Um, I should have been less, I should have either gotten my food processor out or been like, uh, I don't know, done a little more choppy choppy because I didn't get, you're almost supposed to make like a mushroom pate mm-hmm. and I had, mine were still, you could still sort of visibly see some of the pieces. So everything kind of needs to be cold when you assemble mm-hmm. it. So I made the Duxel the night before and then the day of... When I was ready to assemble everything, I rolled out the dough and then kind of formed a log uh, on the side because I needed to kind of, you need to kind of guess like what, how much area to coat with the duxelle um, so that it wraps all the way around your fake beef log. So the duxelles work that way? Like they, they stop the moisture from escaping? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be like a pate. You cook all of the fluid out of the mushroom. They're cooking mm-hmm. down for, I don't know, a good twenty five minutes, half hour, until until it is, yeah, mostly like a paste with no extra liquid. It's so hard for me to imagine that, like like if work that working the same way as something non porous like Parma ham. Yeah, I think the better bet is something like Parma ham. Um, or like a crepe, which one of the recipes I saw said to do both duxelle and crepe. But when I thought about making a Wellington, I couldn't picture wanting one without the mushrooms. So Yeah, I get that. Um, and then I didn't want to be bothered to make uh, gluten-free crepes that I wasn't sure like were going to work out well. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's why I went the, with the duxelle. And I wasn't sure, too. Like, I haven't worked with the... Uh, fatty meat substitute all that much so I wasn't sure how much liquid it was going to release as it cooked I would I guessed that it would be less than beef because it just has like different properties and acts differently and stuff like that what uh what meat substitute did you use I don't think you've actually named it yet yeah I think I specifically avoided naming it so far it's the beyond meat uh ground beef packet okay (laughs) why did you avoid naming it I don't want to give them any free advertising (laughs) oh okay that's fair that's fair we'll wait till they sponsor us um in the pictures you sent though it looks i don't know if it's the light but it looks kind of pink like all the whole time like does it change color when you're cooking 100 pink the entire time it does not change color after you cook it which is a little bit disconcerting i have to say i don't know maybe they had a good reason for it maybe it would have been like totally gray if they hadn't put the beat beet juice in there um although like okay so on the note of being gray like your pictures your pictures look really good like it looks really well wrapped and really neat and like it slices really well and there's like a beautiful golden color on the top but the the kind of the inner part of the pastry and then in the earlier pictures when the pastry is raw it's kind of a gray color um which i assume is related to it being gluten-free right yes um i think it's specifically i use a a teff flour in the blend that i make so it's white rice flour teff flour potato starch tapioca starch and some xanthan gum 
and it's the teflower. It's the teflower really in that mix that gives it some color, sort of a tawny brownie, slightly grayish after you add the other, after you add like liquid ingredients color. You know, every time Paul says on Bake Off when someone puts cocoa in their flour or they're using like an alternative flour or something like that, um, that you can't tell, you won't be able to tell by the color when the, when the, when the item is baked. That's kind of always the, the lay of the land with gluten-free baking. You have to sort of get used to how the flour and the dough acts differently. But yeah, it's also, I mean, I did an egg yolk wash on this one because I really wanted to get a nice golden sheen. I, yeah, it's, it's something I am working on and perfecting because it is another thing that's harder. It's harder with gluten-free baking. So yeah, I've tried like a milky egg wash. I've tried egg white and egg yolk, like the whole egg wash, but so far yolk wash has been the best. Do you think you could pass it off as meat like could you have served it to a meat eater and they would have believed it was a beef wellington i asked my partner this and he says that he says that we could he eats meat i should be clear um and my kid is convinced that it's chicken (laughs) she (laughs) she went to school with some in her lunch today and convinced her teacher that it was chicken I think I saw on social media that Sinclair was making some like a pastry out of Play-Doh along with you. Yeah, she likes Is that right? Yeah, she likes to roll stuff out when I'm rolling stuff out and she has a little like Play-Doh pastry kit. So she was putting stuff in the fridge and taking it out and putting it in the oven. Not the actual oven. Putting it in the, okay. <laughs> like a, like a, like in a play oven. Yeah, like the dr- like a drawer or something. I don't know. Play-Doh in the fridge would make me so nervous. It would be hard to mix it up, I think, but not impossible. But you could take a bite out of it and then you'd very quickly realize. If I remember from, like, being a kid, it's very salty, right? Yeah, I think they do that on purpose to discourage you from eating it. Yeah, so it worked out pretty well. Um, I made a Madeira sauce. I I asked our listeners on Twitter if I should make mushroom gravy or Madeira sauce. But then when it came time to do it, I had a bottle of wine and I did not have mushrooms. <laughs> so I'm so sorry. I disappointed everyone. And I made the Madeira sauce, which is another thing that takes like, I don't know, like an hour and a half or two hours to sort of cook down. That's another reality of home cooking is you use what's there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used thyme and rosemary from my garden, which was kind of nice. Mm. So... Um, we ate this Wellington. Um, I didn't wrap it 100% perfectly. Like, I had a little bit more overlap than than, uh, than I'll have the next time I make it. Um, so there was a small area of, like, doubled pastry where my inner pastry didn't cook totally. It didn't cook perfectly. So, mm. um, But the top and the sides and everything that was in that doubled bit cooked pretty well. I didn't get super good flakes. Uh, the next time I make it, and there will be a next time because everybody had seconds and, Mm. um, the child had like an, basically an adult size piece and she ate the whole thing, (laughs) um, before she began to attack her mashed potatoes. So it's going to be part of your regular rotation from now on, you think? Yeah, I think it will actually. Um, so I think the reaction 
of a lot of people to a gluten-free vegetarian Wellington is to be kind of skeptical. Like, <laughs> like, and I'm wondering if you have advice specifically for people who are trying to get over that hump or oh, like. This is a bakeware. Even if you have small technical issues that crop up, that you know Paul and Mary are going to dissect on screen. It's so good. It's <laughs> it's worth the time it takes to make it. And it's not actually that fussy. Um, you have a lot of resting time because everything needs to be cold. But I'm 100% going to start making Wellingtons. I had thought about them as kind of like an insurmountably difficult thing. And they're not really. Um, they're And they're just so delicious. The end. <laughs> <laughs> so we have the showstopper to talk about. So, but I think that we can actually kind of breeze through the showstopper because it drove me a little bit crazy. And maybe we, all, all I want to do is like critique the the overarching idea of it and then call it a day. The overarching idea of, of, of American pies? Family-sized American pie, no lid, three and a half hours to bake it. That's fine. But the way that they introduce it, the way Paul talks about it, instead of being like, I need the... F- pastry to be buttery and flaky and delicious he says i want people to make a less sweet pie pumpkin pie pecan pie key lime pie i want them to lessen that sweetness and let the subtleness of the flavor come through because to be honest like every time i've had an american pie i haven't wanted to eat more of it we just saw them make a hand-raised gelatin filled (laughs) hell pie and this is the way they talk about american pie it's just so rude. Danny agrees with him. She says something very similar. She says almost the exact same thing when they come around to talk to her. She says that she also feels like like the whole genre puts her off. I don't, I have, frankly can't, I don't get that. I've baked stuff from like the British tradition and stuff from like a more American or North American tradition. And I don't, what recipes are they choosing? They also show like a really fundamental misunderstanding of how to use pumpkin and squash and pie Mm. that is disturbing. Like, oh, I baked this really poorly. It's a bad pie. Yeah, it's a bad pie because you baked it really poorly. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, who's, who's? Uh, whose squash pie are you talking about? Catherine's with the peanut butter? Oh, there's Catherine's. And then there's also, um, I think James makes, uh, uh, oh, sorry. He makes a sweet potato pie, Mm -hmm. which kind of lives in the same, in the same genre in my head. The way he talks about it though, he's like, I have, I watched a lot of Southern cooks making this type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought that it was interesting and I want to try it. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, um, he gives it a good effort, but he just, uh, when you see the texture of his pie at the end, he hasn't made it smooth enough. Yeah, I agree. And it's, that does not, one of the key things about pumpkin pie and sweet potato pie and squash pie, you have to get it to a super smooth texture or it's going to start like dinging savory bells in your head mm-hmm. and you don't want that to happen because that, because it's a pie. But they all badmouth. They are all badmouth. No, not all of them. Several of them badmouth American pie. John does as well. John, Paul, they cut into John's and Paul says, there's a lot going on there, isn't there? And John goes, well, that's American for you. It's just so ridiculous. Um, um, Sarah Jean makes a chocolate and banana cream pie with salted caramel. 
which sounds to me like too much to be honest but i also don't love banana cream pie she says so she says the same thing she says uh the english don't do this you know they would be a bit embarrassed <laughs> of this they would be like oh well i'd rather have an apple yeah but the english created trifle which is a layered dessert that includes a gazillion different things. So I, I don't functionally understand the issue everyone has here. But, I mean, salted caramel is delicious. Um, the pie that looks the most delicious to me um, is, is Brendan's, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and Ryan's, too. Um, Brendan makes a blueberry, raspberry, and Chantilly cream pie, and he uses pectin to set it. Um, and then he has he has blueberries on the bottom, so he's doing red, white, and blue. Blueberries on the bottom, and then he does a raspberry chiffon, which is a puree of raspberries and cream. It looks delicious. And then Ryan just mm-hmm. makes he makes what is essentially the base is is essentially a uh, classic key lime pie, so condensed mm-hmm. milk and lime juice creates a natural reaction, which is going to set the pie. He adds crystallized ginger. Mm-hmm. which is a super smart idea that I have, like, never considered. Um, the only slightly strange thing that he does... I would say this crystallized ginger is, like, a stroke of genius. The slightly weird thing that he does is that he makes meringue to go on top instead of making a whipped cream uh, mm-hmm. to dot on top. So um, I'd rather have whipped cream on my key lime pie, but the crystallized ginger sounded completely amazing to me. I thought he sounded so good. I thought it looked really good. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Those are the two pies that I wanted for sure. Um, but Ryan was emotionally a mess through a lot of this. Mm-hmm. You know, when he went to blind bake his shell, he forgot the the beans mm-hmm. and the sides collapsed and he had to do it again. And they had, you know, that classic shot again of him throwing it away. Yeah. You know, the, the, you know, in the pan. And then he had like so little time left to just to start over completely. Mm-hmm. Um and he said, you know, if this doesn't work out, I don't have a plan B. You know, I'm yeah. completely down in the wire now. Uh, and then when the judges say it's, like, one of the best things they've ever eaten, um, it's, he's so shocked. It's such, like, an incredible moment, you know, because he had been going into that really concerned. And, you know, they were they went into this round saying, like, everyone's in danger. But, you know, Ryan was last in the technical. That's pretty serious. And, yeah, I feel like he put out something beautiful and then they loved it so much. And yeah, and lime and crystallized ginger, that sounds... That sounds so good. That sounds so good. Um, John, I think John and Catherine make the largest missteps here. Um, John makes a star-spangled pecan pie with sour cherries and chocolate ganache and sweet crust. And it, it really is just too much going on. It looks so gritty when they show the inside. Yeah. I was like, that looks like an awful texture. Yeah. And then Catherine makes a peanut butter and squash pie with a chocolate ganache topping, I believe. And it looks beautiful. But I think part of it is, so my my dad, who's from England, uh, hates peanut butter. And I thought that this was like a quirk of him. But it may be sort of more culturally broad than that. I love peanut butter. And she serves it with... Um, Uh, like Reese's peanut butter cups on the side. Um, Mm -hmm. And those are one of my favorite. I love a Reese's peanut butter cup or the bougie ones, the like Justin's or whatever. The interesting thing about a Reese's peanut butter cup is that if you take the chocolate off and just eat the peanut butter that's in the center, it is so, so, so salty. 
and it has to be salty mm-hmm. because that is what allows the peanut butter flavor to stand up to the, the chocolate that's encoding it. And so I feel like she probably undersalted her filling. And then she also probably should not have done peanut butter and squash. That was a bad idea. She should have done, if she wanted to do a Reese's peanut butter cup, she should have done something different. You know, I could, I can imagine a world in which Catherine's was good. First of all, it looked gorgeous. She Mm. got such a good shine on the chocolate. It was exactly the right size and thickness, you know, like it looked really simple and really elegant. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can definitely imagine a chocolate peanut butter pumpkin pie that is delicious. Yeah. Um, if you had, you know, that really smooth, velvety, like condensed milk oh, yeah. pumpkin kind of flavor, uh, and then like mixed with peanut butter that had that same sort of texture and smoothness and and was, you know, salty and like, yeah, rang, as you said, rang savory bells, but then was like coated in really rich chocolate. I can imagine loving that pie. I was sort of sad when, you know, when they were really disgusted by it visibly. Like even before Mary said anything, Mary was like, it looks wonderful, but... <laughs> and then there was, like, a shot of her face, and Catherine was like, but it tastes disgusting! Because you could just see it in this the slightest, like, you know, turn of, you know, of Mary's chin, and you knew... You knew, you knew it was going to happen. I think part of it is that Catherine made a pie that she didn't necessarily want to eat herself from the outset at all, and that's always a mistake. Um, if you feel mm. like you're playing to someone else's preferences, and you find those mm. preferences kind of unappealing then it's going to be hard to pull that off but yeah I was a bit sad about that one however you said that you thought John and Catherine made the biggest mistakes Mm -hmm. Um, I thought Manisha made the biggest mistake so Manisha yeah she makes a banana scotch pie with meringue on top sorry I totally discounted that one because that (laughs) because it wasn't really a pie she didn't even finish sort of you know it's like she had no setting agent and then she just had like a pie shell full of liquid yeah Yes. Um, I made, well, I made something approaching this mistake-ish um, when I made the uh, um, my tart that had curd on the, uh, the uh, grapefruit curd on the bottom. But that was, curd will set. Like, I just mm-hmm. left it a little bit, just a hair too loose. And then it, so what I had cut my slices, they oozed slightly one oozy element one oozy element is different than yeah the whole thing is liquid like all the layers are liquid this is um, the thing yeah she made a pudding yeah in a pie shell and i yeah as they say like never in a million years would this set so yeah she made a bunch of missteps also the flavors seem like way too meringue is something that you use with citrus that you use in cases in which you need something like light and fluffy to cut through Mm. more intense flavors um banana scotch pie is already like sweet as hell so it's also like her shell her shell cracked um and broke off and she tried to fix it with caramel and then she you know then she put meringue on top um and I feel like her efforts to fix it made it worse. Like, it looks like... Like, I felt like it would have looked better even if that chunk were just missing, you know, than what she did to repair it. I I feel like it looked like an earthquake hit that pie. Yeah, I mean, if she had just put the stuff in without the shell in there, it would have just... Everything just would have run out the side. Yeah. But anyway, so... And then Danny's... Danny makes a mistake because she uses alcohol to cut what she thinks are the two sweet flavors of her American pie... 
and then mm-hmm. she overboozes it and not even Mary Mary likes it. Um, yes. yes. But yeah, Ryan's pie. Um, Ryan's transcendent, pie apparently. is transcendent and it's one of the best things they've ever had on the show. And it is enough, even though he came last in the technical and, um, and did okay. He did well-ish in the signature. It's enough to win him Star Baker. So that's mm-hmm. exciting. And uh, there's a moment when Ryan realizes that it's him because they say fish something and you can mm-hmm. see this like his eyebrow twitches and yeah. then he I think he might realize like oh it's um, Brendan also made fish oh it's me it's me and then it is mm-hmm. him and it's so heartwarming yes yeah it's such a nice moment this is what I was saying. I feel like the emotional highs and lows of this arc were very intense this episode. I spent, you know, I spent the end of the technical and then most of the showstopper feeling like, please don't go home, Ryan. Like, I feel so bad for you. This is breaking my heart. And then when he had such a victorious end, it felt so good. Yeah, it was like a, um, it was sort of like watching like a kid's movie when there's like a sports team that sucks that ends up winning yeah. the championship. <laughs> yeah. Not that Ryan, Ryan doesn't even suck, but... He hits a lot of, like, technical challenges and, I don't know, I think feels the pressure of the tent, which, like, fair enough. And then Manisha goes home, and I didn't, I hadn't remembered who went home. I think it is her pie that sends her, sends her, her pie sends her home. It could have been Danny, really, that went home also, I think. Um... I feel like Danny was kind of middle-low, like a lot of people were. I I feel like, um... I said, I believe in our previous episode, that Manisha was my favorite. Uh, but I was strangely okay with her going home this week. I felt like she, as I said earlier, like I felt like she seemed done. Yeah. Um, and then also, she's such a self-actualized person. You know, I felt like she will be fine. You know, I feel, even though, you know, like everybody, she she was upset and she like teared up a little bit in yeah. the goodbye talking head. Um, I felt like she took good things away from it you know she was like this has given me more confidence you know I can I know what I can do now you know I I I felt good about her 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 going I felt like she had a good journey she had a good time um whereas there were other people where I felt like if they had gone home this week like it would have destroyed them yeah you know um they had not reached a good point in their emotional journey with the Great British Bake Off I guess yeah um uh, Danny does say that she felt a little like beat up by this week. Um, Paul says about Manisha something similar to what you're saying, which is that um, essentially things are going to keep getting harder and harder, and she's just sort of hitting some walls with some of the technical aspects of the challenge ch- challenges, which is fine. And Manisha seems like she's she's kind of more or less ready. Um, The one Mm -hmm. thing that she says is that she doesn't want her family to be disappointed in her. And that's actually what makes her feel kind of sad. But she says she thinks that they won't be. And they shouldn't Mm -hmm. be at all. I know. She made it to episode five. That's huge. It is huge. So, Um, But it will be sad to not have her around in future episodes. Yeah. Yes. I agree. I also feel like this is part of what makes this episode sad is that it is the beginning of the emotional unraveling of oh, everyone. Yeah. Like that's what we're going to have to watch from now on. Yeah. And like, um, losing faves because everyone who's left, I like everyone who's left. I'm kind of rooting for everyone who's left. And mm-hmm. also sometimes I, 
ha- I have I've, I'm sort of like rooting for someone who I know is like not as strong a baker as someone else who is like a stronger baker who's like clearly gonna get through but I don't like uh, them as much. I was thinking about Catherine um, and her, like, she, 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 it's this episode where she says, a hero to zero, that's me, yeah. right? Um, she's so <laughs> high after the first two, like, especially that she won the technical. She, and she tears up when she wins the technical. And she says that she had called her family the night before when they were making them all wait overnight um, to tell them it had been awful and horrible. And she can't wait to call them now and tell them, oh, no, it was great, I won. And how, like, you know, shocked and happy they're going to be. And then at the end, and then she's like, I would really like to get Star Baker, you know, once yeah. before. And she's like, you know, you can tell she feels like she's jinxing it by saying that. Like, she doesn't want to say that on camera. It's kind of, like, out the side of her mouth. Like, I would really like to be Star Baker. Um, and then, you know, when her her pumpkin chocolate situation goes sideways, she's like, well, you know, of course, that's, like, classic me, classic cat. And, you know, that, uh, I don't know, that made me really... I mean, you're really upset, you know, this, it, this feeling in her mind that it discounted all of it, you know, that the one failure undid the highs of the previous day. Yeah, it's a bummer. Or even that morning. I felt that way also. Poor Catherine. Oh, well, she lives to try next week for Starbaker. True. True. Okay. So should we sign off now? Sure. I'm Andrea Bennett. Uh, I'm Kim Fu. You can find us on Twitter at Rough Puffs and on Instagram at The Rough Puffs. Today's sign-off is for the GBBO sheep who feel quite present in this episode, and it is see you later. Like you? Like E-W-E? Oh. <laughs> Andrea, I don't know that that one comes through in audio. <laughs> oh, boy. Mackerel, can you just cork it for a second?